Well, good morning. Is it hot in here? You're going to see me literally miraculously shed two pounds of body weight right in front of you. I'm going to pray again. God, um, what do we have to bring? I just feel uh, a real lack of having anything that you would deem necessary for this body outside of you. So today I'm asking that you would preach this message and that you would also, as you live in the hearts of your people here, that you would confirm the things that this scripture point its finger to, give us strength to live in it, walk those things out. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Any football fans in the house, raise up your hands. The Pro Football Hall of Fame echoes with amazing catches and game-winning drives. And regardless of the team that you root for, you can reach back at one point or another, whether it be last season or a, a decade of seasons ago, and reminisce on great plays and games won. For me, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was rooting for... Joe Montana and Jerry Rice in the 49ers back in the early and mid-80s. And some of you in here will remember the catch during the 1982 NFC Championship game between Dwight Clark and Joe Montana. A couple seconds left, thrown up fourth down, right in the edge of the end zone, game one. Or maybe if you're a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, you can remember the immaculate reception. Check it out. It's right Last here. Chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. Tipped off. Rachel Harris has it. And he's over. Let's check this out. They're going to replay it. Look at his fans. It's crazy. He grabbed it with five seconds to go and scored. You got to remember in 72, they can't turn it around as fast. Here we go. Here's the miracle of all miracles. Watch this one now. Bradshaw's lucky to even get rid of the ball. He shoots it out. Jack Tatum deflects it right into the hands of Harris. And he sets off, and the big 230 pound rookie slips away. And that's it. You can cut it. That fires me up to see that. <laughs> Makes me want to watch the whole game. But as great as that play was, it's nothing compared to what God in this season has got up his sleeve. You see, our passage today is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and it paints a picture of God's ultimate, his, his final game-winning drive. And less than, but similar to how Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life, his death and resurrection will be celebrated. It'll echo through all eternity, through all ages to come. So also will echo the story of the bride, the body, you, rising up in the end days. Holy, blameless, manifesting the wisdom 
of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And God wants us to know today that we're included in that team, in that body. That we're part of it. We're part of the story. Not just a spectator watching a replay of a game, but as players who will get to celebrate the greatness of God manifesting in you and through you, his body in this generation. If that doesn't get you fired up, nothing will. Stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, please. Again, we're in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took captives and gave gifts to his children, his people. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly regions? He, was, he who descended to the, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. You can be seated. So I got to be honest with you, approaching a passage like this is kind of like approaching your fifth plate at an all-you-can-eat buffet. So instead of running the risk of giving you massive indigestion this morning, we're going to break this passage into three more manageable portions so that it can be easy for you to do the very thing that what we as a body need to do, and that is take from God's word, take it home, and chew on it, feed on it, and make it your own. So here's my first of three points. Number one, God-given identity, the realization of who you are in God, precipitates God-given functionality regarding the kingdom of God. You've got to know who you are in Jesus Christ before you're able to function like God wants you to, how he's designed you to. You can't put your function before who you are really before in Christ or else you miss the point. Like a ruling monarch has special functions that are unique to his calling or placement in life, so also we have special functions that are directly related to the special identity that we now have in Christ. Verse 1, check it out. 
As a prisoner, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Now, some of you who are using an NIV, uh, it reads, live worthy of your calling. There's several different ways of interpreting the ending of this first verse. Here's the first way. You can simply do it like the NIV and, and read it. I urge you to live worthy of your calling. Or number two, you could read it like this. I urge it, urge you. Actually, this is closer to the Greek in my opinion. I urge you to live worthy of the calling by which you were called. The second interpretation, I think, gives us a better sense of where Paul's going in the whole rest of the passage. That as we realize truly who we are, I like to call it our identity. It's this identity that precipitates calling. As we discover our identity in Jesus Christ, that's when we begin to experience the gears mash, the back wheels spinning, and us moving towards this very thing that God's designed us to put our hands to. It's then when we realize our function. We begin to aim at the right target instead of like these sprinklers in my front yard Spurting water all over the wrong thing. We're aiming right at the thing that God's designed us to work on. One of the first things that I ask when people come into my office for counseling, I get a chance to do uh, pre-engagement counseling, premarital counseling, um, crisis counseling. Uh, I get to audition people for, for the worship bands on both campuses. One of the first questions I ask them is, so who are you? Tell me about yourself. And most of them answer something like this. Well, I grew up in Grand Rapids. My mom and dad are still there. Or maybe uh, my mom and dad live over on the lake shore. And uh, we've got a new family. We have a two-year-old and one on the way. And, or I just graduated from Grand Valley College. That's identity for most of us. I mean, just look at the info page on your, first, your Facebook account. I mean, not right now. But... That's identity in general. But that's not what Paul is referring to when he's speaking about the calling or identity by which we're called. Let's reflect back on where we've been, what we've learned from Rod and Neil and Matt and Mike and Ephesians over the course of uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 4. Your true identity is that you have really been called chosen before the world was created it's you verse 1 chapter or chapter 1 verse 5 your true identity is that you were chosen by god to actually be his children same verse that you're actually heirs to all that the father owns Chapter 1, verse 7. Your true identity is that the Father has sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for all of your wrongdoings. That he holds them against you no longer. That he atoned for those sins. Chapter 1, verse 13. Your true identity is that he protects you you. He's sealed you with the Holy Spirit to preserve you forever. Chapter 3, verse 10. Your true identity 
is now. He's given you a mission, us as a body, as a mission to display his wisdom even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Your true identity, whether you feel it or recognize it or not, is that you're loved. In fact, he says, he loves us far more than we ever could comprehend. That's amazing. But really, how often, day in and day out, do we live according to those realities? These truths are probably the most real thing about our lives. And whether this identity is the core truth that you live by or not, one thing is true for sure. We will, as humans, live according to what we believe about ourselves. We grow up, grown up believing that we're losers. More than likely, we'll respond to life as if we're a loser. If your mother and father were divorced when you're growing up, you have a higher chance of being divorced yourself. So what identity do you live by today? What do you whisper to yourself when you blow it or make a mistake? Or what are you telling yourself after you close the big deal? What do you spend your time dreaming or thinking about? What do you do with your spare time? Take a moment and think about it because those are the leading indicators to tell you what identity you're living in. Is it a broken one? Or is it God's identity? You see, if you're rooted in the identity that God's provided for you, the one that he spoke into you, the the reality of all that you are in him, then things like getting to the the top or the head of the company, climbing the corporate ladder, uh, won't be the most important thing to you any longer. Or just convincing him or her to marry you won't be the most important thing for you any longer. Or making a move to finally sign the deal on the cottage or the new car or just very simply for some of us, making it through the day won't be the overwhelming thing that it has been for you in the past. See, what does God do? He replaces those things, those parts of, those, those longings of our old identity with new things, with himself. And a burning desire to be used like he's designed us to be used. But not only do we need to know and experience our identity in him, but we need to live worthy or up to this identity. We hear it all the time in in pro football circles. You ask the question each year, like I did with A.J. Jenkins for the 49ers. Hope that rookie lives up to his, you know, his, his whatever. What about politicians? He asked the question. I find myself asking the question regularly. He's a senator. Why is he acting that way? Or maybe standing in the line at your local Meyer, D&W, or King Market, you see magazine after magazine with celebrities 
that aren't measuring up to or living up to their elevated status. And guess what? That sells huge. Why? It's not because they act really different than the general populace. It's in part because of their high placement in life. We just expect more of them. So how are we doing today, born ones of God, children of God? Take out a pencil or a pen. Do you have one? We're going we're gonna to find out right now. Okay, if you have a pencil and pen, grab it um, because we're going to do a little test. I'll give you just a moment to get one out if you've got it. You can just write on the back of your quad, starting in verse 2. Here we go. This is what I want you to do on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest. (laughs) Do this with a smile on your face, would you? How would those who know you best rate you in each one of these areas? Starting in verse 2. Are you lowly, humble in attitude, behavior, or spirit, modest and unassuming? One to ten. How would those who know you the best rate you? Number two. Are you meek? Are you patient? Do you prefer God's will for you over your own, even when it means giving up something you really want? One to ten. Are you long-suffering, enduring wrongs, and suffering without complaining? Number four, are you forbearing? Do you hold back? Do without? Abstain to control yourself when provoked. Number five, One being the lowest, ten being the highest. Are you committed to unity? Or do you build yourself up by tearing other people down behind their backs? Does what you say encourage people around you or weaken them? Number six. Are you bound, connected, bonded to those around you by peace? When people enter into your home, do they have an, expression, uh, an experience of peace? When you sit down across the table with them for lunch, as fun as that may, may be, do they walk away built up and strengthened? Okay, so that's it. Why don't you just take a moment and uh, evaluate uh, your results. Nothing like getting punched right in the face to learn that you've got to fight, you know? I'm praying that God would use this passage to, to just nudge us awake this morning because I think that that's why Paul lays it out as he does. There's some of us that are in this room who uh, are doing an absolutely amazing job. You humbly are seeking God and you've got a good community around you. And in these areas, you could say, I've got a lot to learn, but really, I'm God, by your grace, I'm heading in the right direction. But this text for some of us in this room Hear me, some of us in this room, it forces us to admit the fact that we're choosing a life that's far below the calling that Jesus Christ has placed on our lives. Do you hear the text call you? 
Can you hear Jesus' voice this morning out of Romans or 13 say to you, Arise, awake, cast off your works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to fulfill its desires. Or maybe you can hear the Lord's voice through 2 Timothy 2. Cleanse yourself. Oh, cleanse yourself. Free yourself from innoble things. And you will be ready to be used for noble purposes. Really, when the day's done, what do you have to offer to the people around you? I mean, look at them to either side. What do you have to offer them if you're not willing to first submit your life to Jesus Christ? If you're not willing to bow your knee to him, if you're not willing to step away from the trifles of life and, and invest in, in grabbing a hold of everything that's good and right and eternal. Let's go back to verse because I think this is really important anytime somebody who's writing scripture spends the amount of time that he spends on a topic indicates its importance Paul spends a lot of time on unity and peace so let's spend a little time there verse 4 make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What does this mean? Again, it's all related to unity. You see, in God's eyes, there's no disagreement or disunity in the Godhead. There's one spirit, the text says. There's one Lord who's Jesus Christ and there's one God, the Father. So as a body... If there's any disagreement or if we have any disunity regarding him, it's our problem. And we're personally responsible. In God's eyes, there's also no disagreement or disunity in the outflow of our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's one shared common hope. There's one faith that leads to salvation. And there's one God in whom we're baptized. So again, if we have any disagreement or disunity regarding the outflow of our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's again directly our responsibility. God's oneness forces us to accept responsibility for our lack of oneness. Do you get it? It forces us to grow up. For if God's mandate is that in all of these things we are one, who are we to argue with God? God's oneness forces us to pick up our battles, pick our battles properly, holding fast to the non-negotiables of the faith and choosing unity on everything that is negotiable. You see, our disagreeing and disunity brings a lack of peace. Where there's unity, uh, Psalm 133 says that there's blessing. Where there's disunity, there's a lack of blessing. Paul is teaching us also that where there's unity, there's a bond of peace. Where there's a lack of unity, there's a lack of peace. You can feel it when you walk into some churches in the United States. You walk in and you feel a lack of peace in there. You could feel it when you sometimes come over to a a friend or a family member who's having strife in their marriage. You can feel it when you walk in the door, a lack of peace. Our disagreeing, Paul wants us to know, 
our disunity, our backstabbing turns the church of Jesus Christ from chapter 3, verse 10, a manifestation of the wisdom of God into some ways a laughing stock before the principalities and rulers of the air. So what do we do about it? I want you to turn to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, would you? Thanks for bearing with me. I'm needing to move fast. Uh, There's a lot to cover here. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this. So what do we do? How do we live up to this calling, this identity, this how do we live worthy of this calling? How do we get out of this place that some of us have been and move towards this growth and experience of a greater and greater sense of holiness in our lives and, and having our lives characterize the, the level of the quality of the identity that God's given us? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, and this is the verse that's often left off, for it's God who is at work in you, enabling you to will and act according to his good purposes. I, uh, when I was at Multnomah Bible College, I... I was so wanting to be a man that, that sought God's face and, and knew him. And, and no matter how hard I worked, I, I just seemed to, uh, it, it kind of grew to the point where I felt like I had so much heaped in my back that, that when I read this, even read the scripture, each time I stumbled across another thing that I was, area where I was blowing it, it just became a heavier and heavier weight. And this was the verse that God had me stumble on in the middle of that season in the middle of me working, 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 working hard, my own strength, he said, no, 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 I will do it. It's my responsible to you, my responsibility to you to cause you to desire me and also to act according to my good purposes. See, God's power is offered to every man and woman to help us live up to our identity in him. It's God himself at work in us to cause us to desire him and then act according to his good purposes. But every coin has two sides. We'd be foolish not to look at the other side, and it's this. Every way, as God's people, that we choose to be distracted and led astray, it is our choice. He's called us to be seekers of his face, humble, broken, and yet clothed in Christ's power to overcome. So in Philippians 2, why does Paul exhort us to work out this salvation with fear and trembling? It's because in God's perspective, the table is set, the food is served, and any hunger or malnutrition on our part, is directly as a result of us not choosing to eat what God's provided. Does that make sense? We need to humble ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and then in due time, he'll lift us up. 
Some of us in this room have tried to comfort ourselves over the years by uh, regarding just the ways that we are off in life by saying, hey, I'm just not naturally a patient or a humble person. Hear God's voice today. He says, that's exactly right. And that's why I provide everything necessary for you to will and act according to my good purposes. Stop what you're doing and seek my face. Some of you are thinking, I've been hurt deeply and have no desire to offer forgiveness. And God says to you, you should be grateful that I have forgiven you. See my great forgiveness for you. Seek my face. I want to pause for just a moment. And I want to just apply some application before we move on. Allie, my wife and I, are learning how to be parents, and we're learning about the art of using a break with our children. Some call it a time. And when our oldest boy is just over-the-top emotional and inconsolable, one of the greatest gifts as a dad that I can give him is say, hey, buddy, just go take a break. Just go out and Get on that swing set, get your head about you, talk to God, ask for help, and then we'll deal with the ramifications of what's happened right here after you're able to to calm down a little bit. Let me just tell you, learn from my mistakes. There's no way that you can step forward as a man or a woman in this room and apply to your already busy schedule the wholehearted pursuit of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. You'll find yourself forcing yourself to get up and reading the Bible a little. But all of the things that you have going on right now will slowly but surely reset you to where you've been previously. So it'd be wise for you to just say, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to put myself in time out. Evaluate the things that are the biggest time rip-offs, time wasters in your life. Write them down and say, that's where I'm going to take my time out. I'm going to remove them for a season. Maybe it's 20 days. Maybe it's 40 days. I'm just going to unplug the computer. For me, it would be political news and sports news on the internet. Maybe for you, it's movies in the evening. That's how you calm down. Maybe for some of you, it's alcohol in the evening. You just, one or two or three and everything's okay. Take a break. Do it in community. And then as you step away from those things for 20, 40, 60 days, fill yourself with a game plan in regards to God's word. Meditate maybe on this identity that in the book of Ephesians, but accompany that also with Asking God for help to have real epignosis, relational knowledge with him, where you speak to him, he speaks back. You, for me, in the early days, it was putting the boots on and going for a prayer walk and learning to talk to him. Maybe that's you too. You seek his word, seek him through his word. You talk to him. And as a result, all the good counsel of God you'll find near you and in your ear and in your heart instead of the bad, bad counsel of the world. 
Let's move on. I got a ton more to say. But I promise, I will not, we're not, I'm not going to keep you here till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, so here we go. Verse 7. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave good gifts to his people. What does he ascended, verse 9, mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Point number two. In Christ, all are given gifts. All are commanded to grow. All are commanded to participate. In Christ, every one of us who's a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ have gifts that have been given by him that are unique to us. All of us with those gifts are commanded to grow, to use those gifts to help others grow. And all of us are commanded to participate because the job is so huge, it requires each one of us jumping in and playing our part. That's the body. That's his body. That's the body, Ephesians 3.10, that's going to manifest the, the wisdom of God to the rulers and the powers in the heavenly places. It's very important to understand that with this team or this body, there's no sidelines. There's no second or third string. There's no, there's no well, today I'm going to play and tomorrow I'm going to take a break. There's no bench to sit on. According to the text, you're either actively participating or you're not. And look at verse 7. To each has been given grace. Verse 16. The whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As you study church history, you can often see the church err in the very similar way in a very similar way that Israel did in the Old Testament. People in the church seem to default depending to depend too much on leaders. Pastors. Israel depended too much on a king. In fact, in the book of Exodus, you see the nation of Israel called by God to be a nation of priests. And yet they, in Exodus 19, out of fear, chose to put Moses as their representative before God. Many big churches across the U.S. find themselves in the same precarious position. People relegate the responsibility of their own personal lives to their pastors and their teachers. They say, I'm not growing because they just don't offer a small group that's right for me. I'm really not getting out of any, anything out of this teaching series. Maybe you're saying that today. But you see, that's not where this text is going. God in verse 7, the high one. The one who descended down to earth, who gave everything that he was to become a little infant. 
was the one after his resurrection that rose higher than every other authority to fill the, all, the whole universe. And it's that authority that he uses to choose to give the gifts individually that he has to each one of us in this room. And these gifts have one end, verse 12. To build each other up. Those gifts that he's hidden in you, that kind of come into fruition as you understand that you're loved and and that you were chosen and and that you have an inheritance in the Father. Those things are meant to touch the people that are sitting next to you here. They're meant to build them up and raise them up and strengthen them. You see, the body is incomplete, verse 16, until each one of us is fully engaging our function. In a healthy church, those with these primary building gifts, pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist, will know that they're being successful when they over time become less, Christ becomes more, and the body is stable and strong on its own. It's one of the reasons why Rod over the years has regularly said, he calls us a church of missionaries or a church of pastors or a church of teachers. It's why he talks about eliminating this stage audience model that we're all in this thing together. Look at verse 14. One of the manifestations of the body growing together is this. It's not dependent on the pastors and teachers to keep it from, in the end, being tossed back and forth by the ways of deceptive teaching. God's plan, and it will become a reality, is that each man and woman in this room, each man and woman in the body of Christ would know how to accurately, proficiently handle his word and would be able to accurately and efficiently discern between truth and error. So what does that mean for us today? Number one, every blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ in this room has been given gifts, every one of you regardless of whether you'd be scared to death to stand on this stage. Trust me, I was scared to death to stand on this stage. We're not. And that the gifted aren't just the clergy. Number two, to be firmly in God's plan, we must be growing in community, which means that you've got to have people in your life and you've got to be investing in others and and those others are the ones that you use these specially graced gifts in your life to build up and strengthen. This room this morning, as I look out over you, is full of gifted people. And because, and because the gifts have their origination in God and not in ourselves, I'm looking at an extravagantly gifted body. A couple months ago, I, I decided... Uh, to take my kids to this carnival. I, I was over at Lowe's picking up some... I'm always over at Lowe's on Plainfield for one reason or another. I get home and I realize I forget something and I'm heading back over there. And I realized in one of their front parking lots they were setting up this humongous carnival. And that next Saturday, that, that next day was going to be daddy's, a daddy day where I take my two boys, seven and five, out and I give my wife, Allie, a break. And daddy day... Uh, is a day where we kind of eat not, we don't eat as well as we normally do, if you know what I mean. The French fries are all good, cheeseburgers. In fact, when I take them hiking, I say, you got to eat your vegetables, and they know the vegetables are Cheetos, so they say, yeah, I'll eat my vegetables. 
I let them dress in any way they want to. You know, they can set up mismatching shirts and pants because my wife, if you know her, she, she often has those kids kind of hair slicked back, matching outfits every time they leave the house. So we loaded in the truck. We drove over to this carnival. We ran across the street and I'm yelling at the kids, watch out for cars, don't get run over by the cars. And we get up to the ticket booth I, you know, I'm Scottish, but I must have Dutch blood in my veins because I could not believe that some of these rides would have cost $5 a person for one ride. So we bought these cheap all-day ride access bracelets, and we were off. I expected to be there for two hours. We were there for seven and a half hours. <laughs> and my son Elias, my son Elias, seven years old, he did not walk to any ride in seven and a half hours. He was the five-story drop. He hit it, and he was heading over to the bumper cars. I mean, I was chasing him. We probably did the fun house 30 different times that day. <laughs> Some of you are asking, why this deep in your message? Are you telling us about carnivals? I'll tell you. It's because I think we often look at our Christian experience like a carnival. We could choose the rides that we want to ride, the ones we think are safe. We can stay, stay clear of the rides that we think will make us puke. And you see, that's not God's way of doing things. Things. The text paints a totally different picture for us today. It paints a picture of one line for one ride. And as we pass through the turnstile and sit down in that car on the track, we pull down our safety harness. That ride is not over until, verse 13, we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, the full stature of Christ. Point three. We are to be Christ's body, fully manifesting Christ's fullness. We, the end for us, is that we as Christ's body build each other up until this body fully manifests all that Christ is from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. All of his holiness. All of his his just life-persuading power manifesting in us as his body. You know that little motorcycle ride that you see at the carnival? It looks like it was made back in the 50s and you get around one side and the front wheel pops up and all the kids shout and stuff. That's not the ride we're on. No, you're on the Christ body manifesting Christ's fullness ride. And let me tell you, it's all hands on deck. It's every gift, every support needed, every ligament required to support this body, every bone required to support this work that God's doing, every voice, every bit of encouragement, every counsel, every, every opportunity to build each other up is required. Verse 
Remember Jesus saying in, in the New Testament regarding his father and his ministry. He said, I only do what I see my father doing and only say what I hear my father saying. I think maybe that's a little bit of what the body looks like as it functions. It's totally surrendered to him. Totally hearing his voice and operating on what he speaks. Some will say, that's crazy. And there's no way that we can become that type of body here on earth. It will not be a reality. Let me answer that by just asking a simple question. Will there be any building up of the body in heaven? When we are made perfect in God's presence, will there be any further work of building that needs to occur? Pie in the sky is the closing of this portion of the passage, kind of like that old saying, aim at the moon and at least you'll hit a star. I'll tell you, the answer is hidden right back at the beginning of our passage today. And this is where I'm going to end. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I, Paul, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul wrote this letter, but more importantly, Paul lived out this letter. His commitment to Christ and Christ's body cost him, his, ultimately cost him his life. It cost him his freedom first and then his life. He followed right in Jesus' footsteps. And he's saying today, you also live worthy. You live worthy with me. I'm not going to call you to do something that I have not owned and lived in myself. Live worthy. He was also a man unashamed to say, in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And we can hear his voice saying today, oh body, build diligently. Build diligently. Hammer in hand in this season. Follow me. He's also a man who was not ashamed to say, whatever you see in me, hear in me, hear me speak, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 9. And we can hear him say, today, as a body, shine forth all that Jesus is on the earth. Do you really know who you are in Christ? Are you living worthy of who he's made you in Christ? Are you taking advantage of all that he has provided to help you live worthy? Are you actively being used by God to build this body? Are you part of a community that's aggressively seeking to be like Christ in every way? That's God's game-ending drive. And he will do it. Pray with me.
Surely your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Surely if Paul was in this room, we would be able to see a man who was able to say, I ran the race and I won the prize. A man who lived worthy of you. And Jesus, we just can't help but dream about what your work is going to look like in the last days because there are going to be multitudes of men and women that are able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Living imperfectly, but living with your strength and your power. Ever, ever building each other up until they manifest as a body your full glory on this earth. And then we'll be presented to you, Jesus, as a bride without blemish, without wrinkle. And the victory of your work in the bride will echo for all generations to come into eternity. We just see that as a high calling and, and we want to be a part of that team. We're not going to shrink back. Give us strength. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.